You feel better on a broad sense. When we're hungry, um, we feel better once we eat, correct? But you know, with the standard American diet, it only takes about an hour for us to feel worse sometimes than when we had first begun, than before we even ate, unfortunately. So I think that you all have learned. I've been overhearing a lot of things. You've learned about the ill effects of insulin on cognition. Um, and I'm not going to get too much into that. I'm going to go in a little bit different route and hopefully address something you haven't really heard too much about besides my last lecture. And that is dealing once again with the subject of bacteria and how we interact with them, how they affect us, not only physically but even mentally as well. And so as everyone's taking their seats, um, just like to go ahead and pause for a moment of prayer. If we could bow our heads together before we begin. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you that you love us, that you mean to do good to us, and that you want us to prosper and be in health and to be happy. And so I pray that you would give us wisdom to know how we can make these changes in our lives and ultimately help us to know as well that you will give us the strength to succeed in these desires. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title for the uh, session at the present time is Food and Mood. And this is dealing with the concept once again, kind of revisiting what we talked about yesterday about that connection between what's in your gut. That's not supposed to happen. <laughs> it's a nice video, but I didn't intend for it to play. Let's see what we can do here. Does anyone know why that might have went off there? Well, enjoy the video. It's beautiful. <laughs> All right, I'm not sure. Maybe we can get one of our technical individuals back there and we can get that slide back up, if at all possible. Perhaps that little Apple TV device has just been unplugged. I'm not sure. Yes. <laughs> all right, we're not going to pause too much. If you have to watch this for the rest of the, the remainder of the time I'm here, at least it's something nice to look at, right? So we'll, we'll talk together even if we don't have the visual. Yes. <laughs> so, food and mood. We talked about in brief uh, the interaction between the bacteria and the gut and the brain yesterday. Now we're going to get into some pretty interesting facts about how this actually can be a practical part of our lives. How can we put this into practice? Because... Uh, some of you came up to me and asked me afterward, well, what about this probiotic? What about this uh, fermented food? What about this one or this one? And there, there are a lot of questions that I don't have all the answers to. But I hope that I can give you some insight, at least that I've gained in the past couple years, that will allow you to make good decisions on all these multitude of options that you have with probiotics. Okay? So let's go on in our presentation. If we can look at the brain. You would be looking at a picture of a man with a brain and his nervous system, but you're looking at the, what is that, the Golden Gate Bridge? <laughs> the, but I'll tell you, this picture is much more complex than any Golden Gate Bridge. Our bodies have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And I want to tell you that sometimes we think of the brain as being in its own section, and it is kind of in its own little space there in the body, but it's not an island. It's a part of the body, correct? If it's severed from the body, what happens? You're not alive anymore, correct? I don't think of any uh, successful case of reattachment of the brain to the body that's ever been accomplished, right? Once the brain is gone, well, once the body is gone from the brain, there's no use in being, there's no ability to be alive. Do we have any? Okay. 
So what can we say then? I simply put it as this. No brain is an island. What we do, not only in our gut, but what we do with our lives, with our thinking, with our, with our actions, it all affects the brain. It all has, whether it's a nervous effect or even a hormonal effect, it all affects the brain. And so we're going to look back again at this concept of bacteria. Remember what happens? We talked about this yesterday. What goes on? You start to have these toxin or these toxic uh, properties that are actually able to come out of the gut and into the bloodstream. They're called lipopolysaccharides. And they're components of the cell uh, exterior surface of the bacterial cells. If you don't remember, we talked about the peripheral administration. So when LPS or lipopolysaccharides are given intravenously, they cause acute anxiety, depressive symptoms, and even cognitive deficits. So the person has impaired learning. They don't quite, um, they're not quite normal with this increase in LPS. Where does LPS come from? You remember? LPS comes from E. coli, right? But it also comes from other things as well. Okay, it comes from other things that we'll talk about in just a moment. But, moving on here, it doesn't just affect the brain in terms of inflammation and, and these other issues. It actually interferes with serotonin production. It shuts down the cycle of serotonin production so that what happens? Low serotonin equals depression. So in more than one way, in a direct and indirect way, these bacterial components that leak out into the bloodstream cause depression, anxiety, and mental difficulties. So is the brain an island? No, it's affected even by the gut, the lowliest of organs, we would say. It's even affected by the gut. So what can we do? What's the solution? Well... I'll submit to you it's not to stress out about the problem because what does stress do to the intestinal barrier? What does stress do to digestion in general? Does anyone know? If you're, it stops it. It stops it in its tracks. You see, what stress does is it actually causes a reaction. We, we term it the fight-or-flight response where we're basically... Um, instead of digesting or some of those other secondary physiologic um, pathways that are going on in the body, none of that matters anymore. We just have to run and breathe heavily, right? And our eyes have to be wide open to get all the, the uh, light that we need to make a dash for a place of safety. That's the fight or flight response. One important thing to note, don't go to sleep during a presentation, especially if you're an Apple TV. <laughs> okay, let's see if we can get this back up again. Yes. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Now we are back in business. And, you know, I'm going to show you these pictures just to make an emphasis here. No brain is an island, right? And here's those E. coli you are visualizing in your mind. Okay. So let's move on here. Stress. Let's talk about this one more time. Stress impairs digestion. Why? Because you don't need to digest your food if you're going to be digested by a lion that's running after you. Okay? There's a matter of priorities in the human body. And so, unfortunately, we use stress in ways that we shouldn't. Let's say, uh, for instance, we have a public speaking assignment and if I were to point out any one of you, single any one of you out, to say, come up here right now, it's time for you to give a presentation. How many of you would have a stressful situation going on? The uh, fear of public speaking is second only to death in, in its prevalence in humanity. I used to teach public speaking. I know I've seen students with that. It's the sympathetic nervous response, the dilated pupils. It looks like they're a deer 
uh, deer in front of the headlights, so to speak. Um, but one of the unknown things about stress is that it really does stop the digestion in its tracks. The stomach becomes filled with acid, and the small intestine and the large intestine cease their peristalsis. So all of a sudden, you have foodstuffs that are just sitting there. Now imagine this. If you have bacteria that are growing on whatever's in the colon or in the small intestine, and it just the, the movement stops, what's going to happen? They're going to continue to digest whatever that is, even if the train is moving or not. And so especially in the small intestine, stress increases the absorption of these lipopolysaccharides. So stress is probably one of the worst things we can allow to really get to us. Notice I said get to us. A little stress is okay. But if we allow that to cause us to be anxious, we're in trouble. And especially if this is chronic anxiety. Sometimes we're anxious, we don't even realize it. You know that, right? Our spouse can make us anxious. You know that? Our boss can make us anxious. Our ride to work can make us anxious. It's this continual fear or um, trepidation or anxiety, I'll use the whole word there, about a stressor that might come again. Maybe my spouse will be upset at me when I get home. Maybe I'll run into traffic today. Maybe I will have a bad day at work. Maybe my boss will yell at me again. Why do we ask those questions? Does it really help? Not really. I mean, if there's there's something we can do about it, maybe it would be good to surmise these things. But a basic tenet of stress is this. Worry is blind, and it cannot see into the future. Why do we do it then? Why do we do it? Well, I think if we just gain a little bit more knowledge of our physiology, we'd realize, you know what? We shouldn't be stressed out all the time because it's going to cause us more harm than good for sure. And I'll submit to you, you could be stressed out about probiotics. You could be stressed out about the bacteria that are in your colon. But I want to advise you something. Do the best you can and don't stress out about it. Because stress is going to cause you more problems than any bacteria probably. uh, Normal bacteria, not pathogenic or disease-causing bacteria that is in your intestines. Okay, But if you take these basic... Um, principles and you apply them to your quest for understanding probiotics, your quest to healing the gut, I think it's going to be of help. But as I said before, don't let it stress you out. We looked at this yesterday. uh, Different types of homofermenters and heterofermenters. What do homofermenters do? They don't change anything, right? They just give you some good things. Homo means the same. Now, we talked about this during lunch yesterday, and we came to a consensus. If you want to boost your perceived IQ and EQ by a number of points, dozens of points, just drop the word heterofermenter and homofermenter every now and then, and people will perceive you as being more intellectual. But I will tell you, if you understand it, that's really the important thing. You may even actually improve your IQ and EQ because you're putting the right things in your system. So let's take a look at a popular homofermenter. This is one of my favorite homofermenting bacteria. Uh, It's called Lactobacillus plantarum. Lactobacillus plantarum has shown or been shown to actually lower the stress-induced lipopolysaccharide production. So for some reason, it helps to heal the gut. And it provides you a lot of lactate, which we learned yesterday was good for the brain. That's not the only thing that Lactobacillus plantarum is helpful for. A number of research articles have been written about Lactobacillus plantarum. In this particular article, uh, Lactobacillus plantarum and uh, Lactobacillus curvatus, two homofermenting bacteria, two of the clean bacteria, were um, given to individuals along with another group, actually these were mice, another uh, group of mice were given placebo. And what they found was pretty interesting, that not only were they given this um, 
probiotic supplement, they were given two different types of diets. And one type of diet is almost always associated with negative effects. That's the high-fat diet. All right. So what they found was absolutely astounding. First of all, with 18 weeks of treatment with these probiotics, even with a high-fat diet, what happened here is we have a gradual increase in plasma cholesterol, but after 14 weeks, a marked regression. And this is the uh, control right here. This is the, the high-fat diet plus placebo. Now, I'm not encouraging a high-fat diet because, look, the normal diet is still better, right? But look at what the probiotic does. It helps to lower cholesterol, even in an unhealthy diet. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Now, here's another issue that's associated with a high-fat diet, and that's plasma leptin, which can cause cognitive disturbances if we have leptin issues. Um, and usually what will happen is uh, leptin receptors uh, may not be working as effectively, so you have more and more leptin to kind of signal um, that you're basically you're satisfied with your meal. Uh, higher amounts of leptin can indicate uh, issues with leptin uh, receptors. So what the probiotic did was it actually lowered the leptin on, even on the high-fat diet. And here, this is the most amazing right here, plasma insulin. Insulin is one of the most profound um, hormones on mood. The reason why is in the corresponding blood sugar crash that occurs about an hour or two after most people's very refined carbohydrate meals, we have usually a spike or a high level of insulin. And we call that the hypoglycemic syndrome. And it's characterized by increasing desires to satisfy one's addictions, irritability, confusion, and fatigue. Those don't sound like good moods to be in, do they? And so, look at what this probiotic does for plasma insulin, even on a high-fat diet. It actually decreased it after treatment. That's pretty remarkable. But the most remarkable thing, at least from a um, physical standpoint, is its actual effect on the fat cells. You know, fat cells are hormonally active. They produce estrogen. They produce inflammatory compounds, which can exacerbate inflammation in the body in general, even in the bowel. And this is what uh, the fat cells look like on the normal diet. Notice the normal diet is better, right? We're not advocating a high-fat diet, but check this out. With a high-fat diet plus placebo, you have some of these fat cells that have enlarged. Their fat cells are kind of like storage containers. And yes, they enlarge somewhat. But look, there are some small ones in, oh, here we go. I'm, I'm looking at this one. These are enlarged pretty much across the board. But over here, if you look, they're not nearly as large as this high-fat diet plus placebo. What does that mean? It means overall reduction in fat mass in the body thanks to this probiotic supplement. That's pretty amazing. So these bacteria are our friends in more than one way. They can help us achieve an optimal weight. Studies have also found that, let's say, uh, mice were um, having issues with um, obesity, and other mice were having issues with underweight. When fecal transplants were done, you actually had a normalizing of the weight occurring. So what is in our gut does affect what appears on the outside. But of course, it also affects what happens on the inside, in the brain. Talk about uh, immune response just real quick, because I know some of you have um, learned about some of the beneficial effects of probiotics on immunity. This is one of the basic tenets of why probiotics boost the immune system. Because this is kind of a cross-section of the uh, villi, or microvilli, this very small passageway um, 
that are surrounding the small intestine. And there are immune cells that are kind of behind this wall. And you have nutrients that can be absorbed through these uh, cells here, but you also have immune cells that project their appendages out over here, and they can tell if bacteria come by. Now, certain bacteria will cause certain effects. For instance, you do not want to have um, uh, pathogenic bacteria coming through your, your gut, such as the uh, salmonella, uh, typhoid fever, uh, because what will happen is you have a robust immune response that actually damages these areas. But normal, healthy bacteria, such as Lactobacillus plantarum, actually do something really beneficial to the body. They activate an immune response which produces something called interferon. And interferon has actually been found to trigger a cleansing, um, kind of a cleansing search of cells in the body. You see, what interferon does is it tells the cell that are nearby, that come in contact with interferon, to put something out on their outer surface. And that outer surface uh, protein is called MHC. What MHC does is says, hey, I'm so-and-so, uh, this cell living in quadrant seven of the liver or whatever, wherever it is, I'm doing this and I'm following these directions and here, immune system, you can inspect me and see what I'm doing. And so now the immune system goes around because interferon activates them as well. They go around and they read those instructions. They say, yeah, you're doing the right thing here. But if it finds a precancerous cell that's following its own instructions or some cancerous instructions, it can destroy it. So interferon coming about from the probiotics could potentially be anti-cancer or antiviral because viruses can invade cells too. Um, and interferon is a help in many cases to finding those viral infected cells. So this leads me to my main theme for today, which is how do we know then what bacteria we should actually be putting into our bodies? We've heard the good things, we've heard the bad, how do we know? You've probably seen some of these things in your grocery store, kefir, uh, probiotics, yogurt, and fermented food. And I'll tell you, not all of them are going to be as beneficial. And this is the reason why. Because not all of these are cultured with bacteria that are producing only positive side uh, byproducts. Some of them may be producing things that we don't really want in our bodies. For instance, we'll go to sauerkraut. There's a very, very well-known process known as the sauerkraut process. And sauerkraut is probably one of the best um, of our kind of folk probiotic remedies because it's relatively clean. But I, let's go through and see what sauerkraut contains. Actually, first, let's go through the sauerkraut process. I want you to see how it actually develops. First of all, when cabbage and salt and water are put into a jar, the initial pH is about 6 to 6.2, which is just slightly acidic. After about 48 hours, the pH drops tremendously to about 3.7 to 4.2. So it becomes very much more acidic. Now during this time, there are two species in particular of bacteria that are reproducing at a somewhat rapid pace. But these bacteria are heterofermenting bacteria. What does that mean? What are they producing? Alcohol and gas, right? And some lactic acid which is beneficial, okay? But once the pH drops to a certain level at about 4.2 or so, there are a couple other probiotics that take the lead. Now, there are other strains that are growing in this medium, but there are kind of dominant strains as well. The two strains that are dominant at this uh, more acidic level are Lactobacillus plantarum, um, and there's one other, I can't remember what it is. Lactobacillus plantarum is the dominant species, though. And we just learned how beneficial it is, right? But the problem is, it took a while for you to start making that Lactobacillus plantarum in the sauerkraut. So what's there first? You've got alcohol in there, in your sauerkraut. 
And this is why if you look at a list of ingredients in drained sauerkraut, you have mostly water there, 1.5% nitrogen compounds and proteins, 0.3% crude fat, 3.9% carbs, 1.1% crude fiber, 0.6% minerals, a little bit of salt, some lactic acid, but then you've got vinegar and ethanol. What does vinegar do outside of the body? It does, it's a wonderful cleanser, isn't it? You can clean just about anything with vinegar. Now, don't use the apple cider vinegar. Use the white vinegar. But inside the body, studies have found that vinegar has a detrimental effect on the mucosa. It will destroy, it increases the risk of GERD significantly. It also increases the risk of colitis. Now, that's only if you're injecting it into the colon. And in fact, if they want to bring about colitis in the animal model, they'll inject it with one of two things. Acetic acid, which is vinegar, or ethanol alcohol, which is your standard alcohol. And it produces colitis. Why is that? Because that mucosa, that, those uh, cells that line the um, structure of the colon and even the small intestine are very sensitive to these products. Now, that being said, that little bit of alcohol probably won't make it down. It'll probably be absorbed before it makes it down to the colon, but you may be getting some of those um, heterofermenting bacteria right here when you consume the sauerkraut. So could there be a better way of consuming sauerkraut? I'll submit to you there is. What's the pH of your stomach? Two, okay. When you add cabbage, what do you get? Three, four maybe, right? Where does Lactobacillus plantarum grow best at? Four, right? So what are you culturing in your stomach for the two, three hours that the cabbage is there? Lactobacillus plantarum. Your stomach knows how to do it better than the people that make sauerkraut, to be honest with you. Now, I'm not diminishing the fact that sauerkraut could be beneficial, but I'll tell you what. There's really no substitute for plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables in the diet. This is really the key. And you could be taking probiotics, but eating other foods, and those probiotics, those, those normal plant-thriving uh, um, uh, bacteria are going to come in contact with, let's say, Bacteria, bacteria that normally thrive in a um, carnivore's gut, if you're eating a lot of meat products, and they're going to war at each other. You're going to have all kinds of issues coming about. There we go. <laughs> I think we know what to do now, right? Okay. So I would submit to you, the best solution on a daily basis is not necessarily just to eat fermented foods all the time, because you could be getting some things that are not the best, but to eat plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables. That's really the ideal. And try to get your fruits and vegetables from non-irradiated sources, which would mean the best place is going to be your own garden. If you can grow your own garden, or if you can sprout your own sprouts, you're probably going to have the best quality probiotics available, because you're going to have those natural um, plant-loving bacteria growing there. So that being said, you might be wondering, well, isn't it okay to have a little bit of alcohol or a little bit of vinegar? Isn't that okay? I'll ask you a question then. I'm not denying that anything, I'm not subjecting anything yet, but just consider this. Alcohol is a toxin. Numerous studies have found that it's destructive to just about any tissue in the body, and even the immune system has a negative effect um, for alcohol, in, in this case suppressing the natural killer cells, which are vital for protection against cancer and viral infections. What are these? Delicious grapes, right? Now, I'll submit to you, that glass of wine that you saw in the beginning, uh, just the last slide, there are beneficial compounds in that wine, right? There's resveratrol. 
There are um, other antioxidants that may have found their way into that, that wine when the grapes were crushed. But there's also some ethanol, right? There's also some byproducts of the fermentation process. But these grapes over here, they actually have resveratrol, but they boost the immune response. Studies have found that resveratrol in the absence of alcohol actually increases the function of those natural killer cells. So where's the best place to get our resveratrol from? If you ask me to go buy you a pound of grapes, and I came back from the grocery store with a pound of these, would you be happy? Why? Because what you see behind here on the screen are, is a rotten grape. But hold on, I might tell you. There's a lot of resveratrol there. There's fiber. There's some grape seed, or grape seed extract. You can chew it up and make your own extract there. There's a lot of good things in there. But there are some bad things too, right? So I think sometimes we have to weigh how much bad do we allow into our bodies? What's the rule of thumb? Because I could say that a glass of wine is okay for me. Or, or you could say, well, a glass of, uh, two glasses of wine is okay. And some people could say eight glasses of wine is okay. But what's the basic rule of thumb we can use to really understand a basic principle of what we should be doing, how we can make these tough decisions. I'll submit to you, it's, it's very simple. We do the best we can with the knowledge that we have. We do the best that we can. Make the best choice that you can. Now, if I have a choice put before me of drinking wine or eating grapes, honestly, I won't choose to drink the wine. I've gone through my college years of alcoholism, and I'm, I don't want to go back to those days. So I've completely pushed alcohol out of my system, and every time I look at the research, I see more and more that the alcoholic beverage industry is pushing their product, yet there are still voices that are crying out and saying, why are we telling people to drink wine? Because it's really not good for us. It's those things that are found in the grape that are good for us. Studies have found a little under two glasses of red wine increased the duration of GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disorder, by 17 times. That's 17x. That's not 17%. That's a tremendous increase in the amount of GERD in just under two glasses of wine. And this is pretty interesting right here. Consuming less than one full glass of wine increased the risk of stomach cancer by 36% compared to non-drinkers. And I've had Christians that have approached me and said, you know what, but the Bible says that we can drink wine. Well, the Bible doesn't differentiate between non-fermented and fermented. Paul's counsel to Timothy is to drink a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake. You've heard that before? So what wine was Paul talking about? It was the, that unfermented wine. Because it's that unfermented wine that actually benefits, it strengthens and tones the digestive tract. It's pretty amazing. So, how do we heal this gut? Well, I'll submit to you with these probiotics, with these choices, we have a lot of options. But we also have a lot of issues we have to solve first before we can even get the full benefit of probiotics. If we have leaky gut, we've got to heal the colon. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have these problems with the lipopolysaccharides, with the toxins that are coming out of the gut. We have to do something to solve this problem. And even in the stomach, you realize we can have bacteria in the stomach that cause a whole cascade of negative effects, such as H. pylori. We'll talk about that just in brief. What does H. pylori do? It's pretty much the causative agent in peptic ulcers or stomach ulcers. How does it cause stomach ulcers? Because it burrows down into the mucosa of the stomach and it allows the stomach acid to come in and 
degrade the tissues. Now, it's interesting because the classical treatment for um, H. pylori is this that you see on the screen. It's uh, decreasing the stomach acid, decreasing the acidity, so that you have less irritation of the uh, mucosa, and then a number of rounds of antibiotics. But we're seeing a lot of antibiotic-resistant organisms in this day and age. So we could potentially be recolonizing our whole bowel with something that sees. Remember, the stomach is the gatekeeper. When it's acidified, it kills a lot of bacteria. But we've just neutralized the acid with this treatment. And we've killed off a lot of the strains of bacteria. But let's say one of those antibiotic-resistant strains comes in. What's going to happen? It's an open door for sometimes a very potentially harmful invasion of these antibiotic-resistant organisms. I'll submit to you there may be a better way of approaching H. pylori. And you, first of all, you have to understand how it works. Now, you see here, there are lipopolysaccharides on H. pylori. It can cause depression, potentially. And the stomach, potentially, could uh, allow some of these to escape. But what I want to focus on more than anything right now is something you see here called urease. The reason why H. pylori is actually able to survive in a very acidic environment is because it produces ammonia. It, and ammonia is a very strong alkaline substance. And so it pumps ammonia all over its body using this urease. And now it's protected. It's got like this force field around it, this safety shield, where it can travel through the stomach and not be hurt by the acid. So what, what should we be trying to do with this little bacteria? Take away its strength, right? Take away its urease. You know there are natural urease inhibitors in nature? We, a lot of these pharmaceutical urease inhibitors have a lot of side effects. But has anyone ever heard of the, the um, compound quercetin? Quercetin. It's uh, found in many plants. In fact, we just talked about one of them, and that was the grapes. Um, grapes have a large amount of quercetin. Uh, table wine, not so much uh, as compared to the grape. But look at this, capers. Capers are the highest plant, our highest plant-based source of quercetin that I know of. A tremendous amount of quercetin. But there are other sources. Just about every plant is going to have a certain amount of quercetin. So consider this. A plant-based diet, we're putting quercetin into the, into the stomach. We're putting other bacteria also that can fight H. pylori. And we're putting plenty of fiber as well. There's really no substitute for the plant-based diet in its effects on normalizing the flora, whether it be in the stomach or whether it be in the small intestine or whether it be in the colon. The plant-based diet is the ultimate. Studies have found that in just 30 days' time, if you switch from a plant-based to an animal-based diet, your whole um, makeup of bacteria change. And you know what it looks like after that? It looks like you have the intestine of a carnivorous animal. And our intestines are not built in the same way as a carnivore. They have very small, uh, small intestines and larger bowels. We have very large, small intestines and smaller bowels. So there are very, very important functions that need to go on and can only be assisted by eating more of these fruits and vegetables. So what does quercetin do with the urease? It actually blocks it. It allows the H. pylori to be destroyed by the stomach acid and potentially that issue be resolved. Now this is going to take probably a while to do. But thankfully there are other remedies as well that according to the scientific literature have been very profound in fighting H. pylori. One of these that you see behind me here is broccoli sprouts. There's a compound in broccoli sprouts called sulfafluorine. And sulfafluorine actually does not target other bacterial species. 
in the, the um, stomach or the small intestine, but it will selectively target H. pylori. So it doesn't kill the other flora, but it kills the H. pylori. That sounds like good news to me, doesn't it to you? That it knows how to differentiate between the two. Here's an interesting source of um, urease inhibitors that also block the ammonia. Guava leaves. This, this has actually been documented in a study. It's found that these quercetin compounds found in the guava leaves actually can block this production of ammonia by the, um, this harmful bacteria, H. pylori. So there are a lot of options. Some people have tried different honeys. There's a, a honey called Manuka honey. You've heard of that. Uh, seems to be helpful with some people. But at the same time, I want to caution you. you got, you've got to take care of a peptic ulcer. You can't let it persist and go on for months and years at a time because then you predispose yourself to stomach cancer. So at the same time, we still have to do the best that we can. Stress is one of those things also that will aggravate an ulcer. Um, but that being said, there are some simple foods that not only can relieve stress, but also can help with the uh, flora that are in the intestines. And that is a personal dependent choice. Does anyone have a favorite fruit or vegetable? Does anyone like bananas? I like bananas. Bananas are my favorite fruit. Now, if you like a fruit and you can sit down and eat it, you're going to get a twofold benefit. Now, here's the challenge. Start to try other foods with an open mind. Start to try other fruit and vegetables that maybe you haven't eaten before with an open mind. Because if we hate our food, what's going to happen? The whole stress response, our digestion is going to shut down. We're going to get hurt by our food, whatever it is, even if it's good for us. So whatever we eat, we have to be thankful for it. Whatever it is. And if we're thankful for these bananas, you know what happens? It's actually pretty amazing. Bananas have been found to promote the growth of bifidobacterium. And if you've got bifidobacterium growing in your colon, you know what else is going to grow? All kind of other good bacteria. It's like an umbrella that's held up so all kind of other good bacteria can colonize as well in the colon. My family has chosen to eat a plant-based diet for a number of reasons. And we've been very thankful for not only for the the benefits, physically speaking, but also mentally speaking. I feel like I have more energy, and it takes a little while to kind of get through maybe the transition period between a uh, um, meat diet or an animal product diet and a truly vegetarian diet, but I believe it's worth the transition. There were scientists a few years back that gathered a group of people together and they had a hypothesis. They said, this group of people over here, they're used to an animal diet, animal-based diet, and so if we switch them over to a plant-based diet, they're going to have decreased, um, I think it was quality of life. They had something called the quality of life index. They're going to have terrible quality of life the positive effects from the plant-based diet are going to completely be negated by all this terrible mood that they're going to be experiencing. You know what happened? They got into the study week after week after week. Their quality of life indexes were surveyed. You know what they eventually found? That they had much higher quality of life and their scores were continuing to increase with the longer they were on this plant-based diet. I'll submit to you, if there are dietary changes that you or I need to make, we have to be open-minded about it. We have to. Because if we're closed-minded, we've already cut off the potential option that could be beneficial to us. And so, I want to counsel you to be open-minded and to continue in your search and your quest to find the proper probiotics, to find the healthiest form of probiotics, to find the healthiest forms of fruits and vegetables, 
the ones that you like the most, the ones that you can, with an honest heart, you can enjoy. But at the same time, I want to show you that there are simple ways as well to bolster and to consume rich probiotic sources without a lot of money, too. Because you can spend hundreds of, maybe even thousands of dollars on probiotics. But I'll submit to you there are very simple ways. Eating the fresh fruits and vegetables, but also just making some yogurt. I told you, at least a few of you yesterday, that I have a yogurt recipe that I was going to share. Okay, and this is not your normal yogurt. This is a probiotic yogurt. And this is not just any probiotic yogurt. This is a lactobacillus plantarum probiotic yogurt. Okay? And I told you, the ones that I talked to, that's so simple, even my daughter could make it, right? This is my six-year-old daughter, Hannah. And she agreed. I called her up this morning. I said, can you make this yogurt, and can you have Mommy take pictures to document it? And she said, sure. She was excited to do it. So uh, we have these pictures. I'm going to walk you through how to make it, and I'll submit to you. You probably don't even need to take notes. It's so easy. Okay? You ready? Here we go. First, you start with a good, aseptically packaged soy milk. Now, you can make your own soy milk, but you're going to have more risk for contamination. So you get an aseptically packaged um, soy milk, such as this. It's, uh, you can put it on the shelf. It's not going to go bad because they have produced it in almost a sterile environment. So there should not be any bacteria in this soy milk, not, at least not large amounts. Okay. And this, the only ingredients in this soy milk, soybeans, water. That's all you need. Anything else is additional. And if you try to make yogurt with some of those soy milks that have like 15 ingredients, it won't work. Because I found some of those things are actually preservatives that you think were just vitamin supplements. So it, it may not work. It may take a long time to culture it. Um, and if you have a soy intolerance, studies have found that pretreatment with lactobacillus plantarum decreases the severity of soy intolerances by 90%. So it enables people sometimes to eat soy that normally would have difficulty with it. So let's go into how to make this wonderful um, little yogurt. So what my daughter has done here is she's just gotten a capsule of this. Uh, this is Lactobacillus plantarum 299B. This particular brand, is it's a good brand. Uh, but you can get just about any brand. It probably would work just, just as well. Uh, notice that uh, she's using her bare hands. It's because she's washed her hands first. You don't want to cause a contamination because of our hands because there are bacteria that live there. Wash off those superficial, superficial bacteria before you do this. Open your soy milk. You take that capsule, break it apart, and dump it right in. Okay, everyone got that so far? That's the most complicated thing about this, by the way. <laughs> if you can get past that, you're okay. My daughter spilled a little bit. It's okay if you spill some, you'll be okay. Empty out the whole capsule into this um, little jug of soy milk. And then you can, this is optional, it will speed up the process, add some honey. And this is some raw honey. Uh, keep in mind, raw honey is a source of some beneficial lactobacilli species as well. But primarily, we're going to be getting the Lactobacillus plantarum. Okay, now, after you add your honey, you put the lid back on and shake vigorously for 30 seconds. And you're ready for the final step. Put it somewhere out of reach and leave it there for 24 hours. That's it. How much tablespoon? It doesn't... I wouldn't put more than a tablespoon. You don't need to put any, but it will make the curd set a little bit more. After it's cultured, you put it in the fridge. Now, Lactobacillus plantarum is very unique in its ability to culture. It can grow at colder temperatures, but it will grow faster at warmer temperatures, not over 105 degrees Fahrenheit, however. So you want to keep the temperature probably room temperature or just slightly warm. And that will enable a good culture to come out. Yes, question? Uh, just however much milk is in here. In the jug. I, you can do the same thing with a large, with a two liter as well. One liter or two liter, same thing. It'll just take a little bit longer to culture. 
If you really want to speed up the culture, add two capsules in that two liter. Maybe a good, good rule of thumb is one capsule per liter. Um, but if everything goes as it should, which 99% of the time it does, you will have yogurt the next day. And this yogurt is a yogurt that is rich in this lactobacillus plantarum. If you'll see on these little capsules like 10 billion units of bacteria. This yogurt, you can't even count how many bacteria are there. It's beyond trillions. So you're saving a lot of money by being able to carefully, and I stress the word carefully, culture your own yogurt. Now, people have been making yogurt for thousands of years, so I don't think it would be a bad thing for me to entrust the responsibility to you as well. But just become a little more educated into yogurt making. Don't make a mistake that I made. I um, used raw nut milk one time, raw cashew milk to make yogurt. You know what happened? I opened that container the next day and I got this huge burst of gas that came out and this alcohol smell. You know what, if it smells like alcohol, don't drink it. This will have a very unique smell to it. It smells like um, maybe like acidophilus or it, it smells like lactic acid, it smells like lactate. And once you've cultured it a couple times, you will know if this thing ever goes bad, you can smell it. It's, uh, it's a very, very uh, scientific way of making your own yogurt, and I really like to use the aseptic packaging because it kind of guarantees that you're not going to make a mistake. Um, but that being said, I told you it was so simple that even my daughter could make it. So I want to encourage you to try out these kind of things, but keep in mind, let's make the best choices. Because it's true, I could just have my family eat sauerkraut, but honestly, I'd rather them not have that alcohol. I'd rather them not have that vinegar because it's not the best. But I found something that's even better. And so that's my challenge for you today, to seek out those things that are better, to challenge ourselves with not only diet, but with all of our physical activities and even with our cognition, even with our um, long-cherished emotional patterns, to seek out the better and the best and to let go of those things that we find out are not so good. Because ultimately, this is what life is all about. And this is what proper emotional stability is all about. Going forward and doing the best that we can and not letting ourselves stress out about what we can't change, what we have no control over, because that's only going to hurt us. And enjoying our lives one cup of yogurt at a time. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.